And we're here February the 25th. February is almost gone. I think this is lesson 18. I might have said lesson 18 last week. I was actually looking at the year, I think, when I said 18. But at any rate, we're here to look at this third temptation and uh, move toward finishing up the fourth chapter. So we started back in October with our study in Matthew. So I think we're moving along at the pretty much the anticipated pace. I know by the time we get up to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I'm looking forward to that, looking forward to preparing for that and teaching that. Uh, but I mentioned that, I don't know, that might go a little slower, I don't know, we'll see. But we're looking at Satan's attempts here. He's attempted to get our Lord to help himself, right? Do this, do that, supply your own needs, make your way a little easier. Of course, that would be to go against God's will and purpose for him at this time. Because remember, it's the Lord that's led him up there. It's God the Father that's led him out into the wilderness to be, to be tempted. So help yourself if you can. And he's tempted our Lord to, to presume upon God, to challenge God, if you were, to test God, to demonstrate uh, the Lord's faithfulness to him. The, Lord's, does, the Lord doesn't need to have that demonstrated. And he says, no, you don't put the Lord to the test. You don't do that. Now he says, you know, I'll help you if you worship me. Okay, I'll, I'll provide everything that you could possibly see or ask or hope for if you just worship me. So it's the same old lie, is it not? There's nothing new there, nothing new at all. We call that, I think in today's vernacular, we might call it selling your soul to the devil. One of my sons was, not Chris, but my other son, he was at our house a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking, I think we were talking about an athlete or something who is just, just seems like everything he touches turns to gold. He's just amazing in what he does. I won't call his name, but my son said, I think he has sold himself to the devil. And uh, I began thinking about that and how it <laughs> plays out into what we've been studying here. And Satan does have that ability, does he not? He can mix and mingle in our lives. We know that from studying Job. We also know that for the believer, he has to have permission. But think about it on the other perspective. Think about if he doesn't have to have permission. Think about it if, as the Bible says, you're not serving Christ, you're not walking after Christ, you're actually serving the devil. And you'd go up to people and say, do you realize, I mean, you probably wouldn't hit him with this right out of the bat, but do you realize that you're actually serving the devil, you're his tool if you're not serving Christ. Because we'll see in a little while, God makes that clear in His Word. You're on one end or the other. You're on one side or the other. There's no fence straddling. You either embrace the world in the world's way. You either subject yourself to Satan's rule unknowing, or you trust Christ and you follow Him. You follow Him. We'll look at that in greater detail in just a little bit. But we're around chapter 4 here. We're in chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. This was some sort of uh, supernatural accomplishment, if you will, on the part of Satan. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot more about it than that, but he was able to transport, if you will, or to lift Christ and in some way and put him in this uh, position to 
to see all that Satan wanted to reveal to him. And it wasn't just what the eye could behold, that's the, the sense that we get, but it had to do with a more intensive knowledge, a real vision of everything that could be desired. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the depth of that temptation? Now we looked some time back, a couple lessons ago, how Christ was tempted to a far greater degree than we could ever be tempted, primarily because He did not yield. He got the full brunt of all that Satan could throw against Him and still did not yield. And it's the same kind of thing that's uh, presented here. So this is very, very intense. So don't get the, the implication that, well, Christ is just standing on some mountain somewhere and He's just looking at a particular place, a particular place of beauty. No, it's more encompassing than that. It's everything. It's everything you could possibly desire. And it, you know, it's easy to, to go left here and start talking about materialism and its impact upon us because we do live in a very materialistic society, do we not? I dare say that unless we pull aside as Americans, wherever we are, and give it some specific contemplation, we don't really realize how well off we are, okay? We have to look at some uh, socioeconomic scale and see where we are, where we rank, at least in the world. And it's always, I guarantee you, everybody in this room is in the, like, top 3%, okay? (laughs) You know, so... um, it's amazing. It's easy to be diverted off into things, is it not? I have a question. So, I'm not sure I fully understand Satan's understanding of Christ. Because if Satan understood that he was God, he would not offer him anything that he could not claim for himself. So, did he, did he think that Christ was less than God? Did, or did he see that he was God? Because... I mean, you understand know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Here, I will give you all of this if you'll worship yeah. me. But it wasn't his to give. He understood that Jesus was God. That this, Jesus could have taken it on his own. He didn't need someone to give it to him. I, I know where you're going, and I kind of dealt with that too. But I look at it from the, from the perspective, or the truth rather, that remember, this is God who's orchestrated this. Okay? This is not just Satan deciding off somewhere. He's going to do this. This is God who's led Christ into the temptation. So we have to ask, well, what's the benefit of that? What is the benefit of that? Why would, look at it this way, why would God do that? Why would he do that? Knowing that though in his humanity, in his flesh, he can be tempted, because it says God can't be tempted, and he doesn't tempt anybody, but in his humanity he can experience this. What is the benefit? Now, if Satan is the father of lies and he blinds others, I, even though he's pretty smart. I believe he's blinded in some way. But the real thing is, why is God doing this? Why is he allowing this? Or making it happen, you might say. What, hon? Well, I think of it when I go through trials and temptations and frustrations. I can say, well, Christ went through this too. He has exactly everything that I could possibly that could possibly come my way. Right. And yeah, Hebrews 4.15, and we've looked at that. Yeah. Yeah. Also, <clears throat> people who know about this and see the temptation, that almost in, in, in of itself is a tool. It's like a guy said to me one time when I was just years ago and I was sharing Christ with him. 
He said something like, he said, well, there was only one perfect man to live, and, and you know what they did to him. You know, put him on the cross. I mean, that was his understanding. You know, as if to say, look, uh, if Christ can be tempted, and this is wrong theology, this is wrong thought, but people say, if Christ can be tempted, then certainly I can be tempted, when of course the emphasis is upon falling to temptation, <laughs> not the mere fact that someone, but the world would look at that and find some level of, of leniency in the fact that it happened. That, that's to say that the devil's getting something out of this. He really is. But I don't know if that helps you or not, Deanne, but when I look at it from that perspective, I look at it more as like... Uh, well, I mean, understanding that, you know, refocusing my brain on the fact that God orchestrates it all yeah. um, is very helpful. But, I mean, it also kind of... I don't know what the, the right word mm-hmm. is. Almost, you know, God uses evil men for his purposes. Sure. And so God used Satan for his yeah. purposes. So Satan here is a puppet. In a yeah. Way, in a way. I mean, not literally. I mean, no, there, I know there's that, right. that duality of... Christ will tell him, be gone, and he goes. So, okay, yeah. <laughs> but it's for, for our benefit to, to see Christ model yeah. um, the life that we right. should, should strive for. If I get to it today, I hope to end with uh, from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And I... The Lord laid those on my heart because it brings all this together, and that might provide some further, so some further insight say, for us. I mean, he's actually saying, if you are who you say you are, then do this. You know what I mean? And Christ at the same time said, I mean, he knows who he is. I don't have to prove to you. It's yeah. almost like they're battling together. Right? Well, they are, but Christ, again, because his heavenly Father has brought him there, he knows what's going to go on. Just like he knew in the garden, he knew what was going to happen on the cross. He knows what's going to go on, but he's going to be faithful to the end. He's going to do that, no matter what comes at him. And we see that clearly, and what a, what a joy that is for us. So he knows. They're all in the know with this. Now, granted, there are things that, that Christ, uh, he temporarily set aside his as it says, his prerogatives. He temporarily set them aside in certain areas, things he didn't know. You know uh, the first one that comes to your mind would be the, when the Lord's coming back, the second coming and all that. He said, who, what did he say? He said, only the Father. <laughs> only the Father. Was, now, wait a minute, you're the Son of God. You're, you and the Father are one, but that would be an excellent example. He, in his incarnation, has set that power that not aside. So... Yeah, yeah. So I see a lot of these. Uh, you know, Christ as the second Adam, and He is living out that perfect righteousness that I have to have. Exactly. So He can impute it. Yeah, and that, in a nutshell, is what this whole thing is about. It started with the baptism when He identified with sinful man, and now He's experiencing this. How comforting! And we've said this over and over again. How comforting is it to us to know that? that we have a high priest who can be touched, as it says, with the feeling of our infirmity. This is not some spiritual ethereal thing. This is what he experienced. Experienced. And last week we talked about the depth of that experience. We looked back at the garden and saw him sweating blood. Okay, that's pretty intense. We visit that again this morning. He's there for us. That's so important. 
How many times in your life have you been to that point where it seemed like nobody understands what I'm going through? Nobody understands the depth of my pain, my burden. They don't. I, I don't have the words to describe it. And yet, we simply turn to Christ in those times. And He provides that peace, that knowledge that we need to strengthen us. When we do that, that builds our faith. I dare say there's nobody in this room who cannot identify with that. And that is, our, that is the essence of our personal relationship with Him. That's very real. You're talking about a time of need when that need is satisfied. Christ does that, and Christ alone can do that in the most difficult of circumstances in our life. Let me push on here. So, he's got this supernatural accommodation. Christ is there looking at this. It says that the devil, the devil, the devil took him upon a high mountain. It's a, what's the word? Paralambano, and it means to, to take or to receive near or to associate with one's self. And the implication here, the reason I go into this, it's speaking of something that's occurring in a very familiar or intimate way. It's something that happens because of relationship. So my point is, do you see the deception in that? Satan doesn't have a relationship (laughs) with Christ, but he's presenting himself that way. It's almost a picture, you know, of, you know, people getting close and so forth. The devil's doing with him exactly what he would do with me and you, giving us some level of confidence or encouragement. At least that's his nature because he's a lie. He is a lie. He doesn't just lie. He is a lie. It speaks of, in part, of assuming a certain office even. This is the the complexity of that word, paralambano. So when you look at it, you, you begin to get a, an inkling about what Satan is doing. In in other words, how he's actually presenting himself. You know, just trust in me. Just just do this, you know. Well, he speaks of uh, showing him all these kingdoms. The word is basilia. You may think of something like St. Peter's Basilicus, the same root for that word. And it speaks of a realm or a kingdom, talking about usually some application to royalty or a reign, if you will, of some sort. And he's showing him, it says here, all these kingdoms of the world and their glory. You'll recognize the word doxa, as in doxology. Showing him all their glory, which speaks of dignity and honor, praise and worship. All the things that we think we would like that would feed our pride in our soul if we were so inclined. And it's always interesting here to note that the devil does often sometimes try to tempt us with something really that we already own, right? In other words, we might be tempted in a relationship thinking that that relationship is going to satisfy some particular need in our life or something. And yet we don't realize, we don't stop and think that Christ is our all in all. He's going to provide and has already provided everything that we need. We're just not willing to trust Him for it. Paul encourages the church at Philippi by stating, he says, and my God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 
You ever apply that scripture to your life in its simplicity? And by that I mean you're in a particular situation where there is a need. But just to remember, God says, I will supply your needs out of my riches. And oftentimes it's so many, it's a situation where we're just not trusting Christ. We're not trusting Him to meet our needs. Because He said, I'm going to supply your needs, whatever they are. Your, your, your need might not be something material, something you can touch on. Maybe your great need at that particular moment is encouragement. It's, it's understanding or something along those lines. Something to build you up inwardly, to encourage you, which is, which is a major function of the body of Christ. We are to encourage one another. We are to look upon the needs of another, as it says, and not just the needs of ourselves. That is an active ministry that we are to be involved in as the body of Christ. It's a very, very much a part of what He does through us for the sake of the church, for, as He says, the building up of the body. Christ and Christ alone knows our greatest need. And He will supply that need at any particular time. Solomon yielded to the temptation to find fulfillment in a wide variety of pleasures, possessions, pursuits, even to embracing at least ten different vanities, if you will, that are recorded in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. He says, though, in that verse, the conclusion of the matter is simply this, to fear God and keep His commandments. And the latter part of that verse says, and we don't often quote this part, because this applies to every person. That's what Scripture says. Can it be that simple? In the times of great difficulty, things that I'm trying to sort through in my mind that seem so complex, I don't even know my real need, I just need relief. He says, here's the bottom line. And you can test yourself with this. Fear God. Keep His commandments. Because He has a word on it. Whatever it is, you'll find it in His word. He has it. Sin can be defined as our attempts to meet our needs our own way. That's not original to me. I actually first heard that from Charles Stanley 35 years ago. An attempt to meet our needs our own way. Now, I thought, you know, I would have said at that time when I heard that, well, no, wait a minute, sin is missing the mark, and but most often that's what it means in the world. And Dr. Stanley's not saying that's not what it means, but he's accurate on this from a very practical standpoint. Think about it. To meet our needs our own way means we have to step away from what God has already provided in His Word. Usually it has something to do with timing. God's going to do something because He's promised to do it. He's going to provide, but He's going to work on His timetable. The thing is, do we have the faith to trust and to wait upon the Lord, to have confidence in Him, to rest in His promises? We're not to choose the way of the world. We're not to manipulate things. And we see a number of examples like that, such as Abraham and the way he presented Sarah you know, as his sister instead of his wife, to, thought he was doing right, but he wasn't. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. You know this verse. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll do what? He will make your path straight. Now, there'll be times when you say, I don't see it. I don't see a straight path. I don't see a straight way through this problem. 
Well, good, because you're left with believing what the Word of God says. That doesn't mean we sit and do nothing. We stay in tune with the Word of God. We do what we know to do. He says He will make our path straight. In other words, He will make the direction obvious. He will guide us. He'll guide us through our circumstances. He doesn't, Lord, He doesn't always change our circumstances, does He? No. He guides us through those things and He promises that He will do that. I can tell you gladly this morning that if you will submit to Christ on those terms in every situation, you will never, ever be disappointed. Never. If I'd been disappointed in my life, I wouldn't be able to do this. I wouldn't be able to pursue this this teaching and so forth with, with any degree of passion because I would question it. But I can report to you this morning that's not the way it's worked in my life and in the life of so many who have such a testimony. And I know that I trust all of you have the same testimony. Trust Christ. He will not fail. Keep your eyes upon Him. So in verse 9, he says, And he said, he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And the, the word that pops out, and it fits so much with the vernacular of the day, is the word things. That's the perfect word here. All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Is this not the battle? The battle against things. Remember, he is a lie. He is a counterfeiter. He is a lie. He is the father of lies. Why would we ever believe that? But we do. Because he cloaks his intent. And we get our eyes focused upon something. It could be anything. It could be anything. The desire for something. The lust of the eyes what we're talking about here. To desire it. Christ would say, and He'll say later when we get to it in Matthew 18, 9, that if your eye offends you in this way, if, in other words, if it leads you to sin, then what are we to do? He says, pluck it out. Okay? Now, He's using a, a metaphor here. Okay? We'd all be blind. We wouldn't be able to read the Bible. Okay? So, that's not what He's talking about. But He's, he's making a point. And He says later, it's better to enter into heaven with one eye than into hell with both eyes. He's talking about how serious these elements of sin are. They're that serious. We don't want to yield. We don't want to... And if you, if you identify something in your life that continues to raise its ugly head and to take you apart from the truth of Christ, God's direction in your life, that keeps you from His Word, that keeps you from fellowship, that keeps you from effective service in His church, these are things that will eventually destroy us, no matter how large or how small they are, rather. He says we are to identify those things and we are to deal with them. They are important. This is Christ talking here, of course, Matthew 18, 9. So again, I say the ultimate deception is to sell to or to promise to someone something that they already possess. Don't forget who you are in Christ as a believer. Don't forget what's there at your disposal. Don't forget that the one that we serve, as it says, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's everything. It's not a problem to Him. He will meet our needs whatsoever they are. 
Psalm 2.8 says, God the Father says of the Son, He says, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Christ knew that, did He not? That was a psalm. And yet Satan is trying to tempt Him to try to give Him something that He already possesses. And there's a lesson in that for us. It's usually not a thing that we want but it has to do with relationships, an, an easement, if you will, of some type over some, some type of emotional or internal pressure that's upon us. In fact, I don't know if we explored this or not, but if we go back to Hebrews 4.15, when it talks about there, it speaks of the feeling of our infirmities. Did we talk about that? I don't remember. It's not talking about something strictly in the physical sense. In fact, it's specifically talking about those pressures of life, those difficulties, the emotional things, the relational things. Can you imagine what Christ experienced? The, the level of rejection, for instance. He has experienced all of that. And He will strengthen us. And He will supply what we need. John eight forty four. You are of your father the devil... And you want to do the desires of your father. <clears throat> he, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a lie and the father of lies. This is Jesus speaking to a group of Pharisees trying to get them to understand the motivation behind some of their thoughts and intents. You are of your father the devil. That's a very heavy pronouncement, is it not? Yeah, that's what he said. He wants Jesus here with this particular attempt at temptation to literally fall down. And I like that. When I was looking at this, it's the Greek word pepto, or pipto, P-I-P-T-O. And it says that it's really, it's the idea of alighting. Now that throws a whole different perspective on what's going on here, does it not? If we read the word in the English here, fall down, oh, we see, we see him, he wants Jesus just to run and crash himself on the ground, you know. Can't get down prostrate fast enough. That's not what the word means. It's more of a contemplative, willful, if you will, uh, ritual type of action. That's what he wants from Christ. This is what he wants to present. And perhaps it's not just to do it, but to do it with a level of reverence, if you will, that's what he's putting forth. So that throws a whole different light on it to me just, just looking at the particular word that's choose. Let everybody see that you're willfully worshiping me. Not even in a, a cowering kind of way, but you've, you've thought about this. This is what you want to do. You're recognizing me as the Lord of Lords when actually you... <laughs> are the Lord of Lords. Fall down, he says, and do this. Do this thing. Jesus didn't do it, of course. Then he said, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him alone. And Jesus, of course, again quoting from Deuteronomy here, chapter 6, verse 13. He's quoting. Exodus 20, obviously, is 
what might come to your mind. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. None. And for you and I today, to supplant anything in that place is what? What's the sin? Idolatry. Idolatry. Jesus has a lot to say about idolatry, particularly regarding the, the life and faith of Israel. Idolatry. Later he calls it adultery. That's what he calls it. And he treats them in that fashion. James 4, 7 would remind us, he says, therefore, submit to God. Great. We want to submit to God. We want to bring ourselves in submission to Him. There's a period there. And then he says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's Scripture. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. And that word resist means to to take your stand. It assumes that you know what the power of your strength is. You know that you're standing in Christ. So, man up, woman up, whatever. Get a backbone. (laughs) Stand upon the Word. Take your stand. Resist. Don't go there. Don't yield. Paul would tell us in Romans 13-14, make no provision. You know, we've looked and we know... We're not ignorant of His devices. We talked about that again last week. We are equipped. We are prepared to get through these trials. We are. We must resist. There is a practical side here. We must remember that there are only two kingdoms. I mentioned this at the onset. There's that of Christ, our Lord, and there's that of Satan's kingdom. We're we're on one side or the other. There's no... Middle ground, Matthew 6.24 reminds us, No one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. He says plainly, you cannot serve God and wealth or any earthly or material treasure. Which, who runs all that? Who runs that show? Who runs that system? The Bible says Satan does. That's the world's way. And he says you can't do both. You're on one side or you're on the other. Mark 9.40 says plenty for he who's not against us is for us. You're on one side or the other. No neutral ground. Ephesians 2, 1 and 1. I'm trying to move along here. It's 10 after. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Paul says, of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. and He's just identifying that particular economy, if you will, the world's way. Who runs that? And he says it's effective right now. It's going on right now. Psalm 103.21 Bless the Lord, all ye His host, you who serve Him doing His will. Serving God doing His will. In 97.7, let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship Him, all you gods. And that's gods with a little g. And the psalmist saying, there's only one God. He is to be worshipped. Psalm 81.9, let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign god. 
And lastly, John 4.24 that reminded us that God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth when we worship the one true God. Verse 11, our final verse, it says that then after the completion of these three areas of temptation that the devil left him. He says, And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. What a wonderful picture. What a wonderful sight. John 26, 53 says, or Christ says, remember what he said when he's talking in the garden? He says, Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? When did Jesus say that? I used to think without studying, he'd said that to to Pilate, and he did say to Pilate he could call. But here he's talking to Peter. And Peter whacked off that guy's ear in the garden. He says, Peter, have have you lost your vision here? You remember who I am? That's our problem, isn't it? We forget who he is and what he can do. I can call 12 legions of angels. I don't need you to do this. I don't need you to do this. Humanity also. Absolutely. Absolutely. Luke twenty two forty three. now it says when he's there praying in the garden, talking about his humanity, and he's in agony. The verses that follow say that Christ is in this agony we talked about. It says there, it says, now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. It wasn't the first time that angels came to minister to him. Listen, folks, if we don't get anything else out of this this morning, listen, at your greatest time, at our greatest time of temptation, at our time of most desperate need, our Christ and Savior will not flee from us. He will provide for us. We must turn to Him. We must do that. And I mention that to you with great, great confidence this morning. It says these angels came and ministered to him. It's the word diakoneo. And it speaks, it's the same word that speaks of the service of, of a deacon or an attendant. They just came to minister to him in his humanity because he experienced what need is. He experienced that. That's hard for us to put together, isn't it? But at the same time, it's of great comfort to know that he did that. Satan tried to twist this earlier, did he not? This, is, this in essence is Psalm 91 that we talked about earlier where it says, won't his angels come and lift you up lest you dash your foot against a stone? Won't they take you by the hand? This is that Scripture being fulfilled, but it's on God's terms here, not on Satan's terms. God's doing it here. But isn't that what Satan likes to do? He wants to even take the Word of God and twist it Twist it so that it meets with our understanding and causes us to move forward devoid of faith. Devoid of doing or having a faith, demonstrating a faith like Abraham in that we're actually moving out not knowing where we're going. We only know that we've been told to go. That's what faith is. That's what it talks about in in Hebrews chapter 11 in that great hall of faith that we look at. 
He went out not knowing where he was going, but he was told to go there. When you hold on to what the Word of God says in a time of difficulty, in a time of stress, that's God's opportunity, another opportunity to prove himself to you, to the validity of his Word. That's what that is all about. If you'll give me two minutes, I can finish up because I do want to take us as we finish. We did get to the end here, but I want to take us to Hebrews and share with you chapter 2 or from chapter 2. And I think this will bring, bring our study here looking at these temptations to a proper conclusion from chapter 2 verses 14 through 18 can follow alone or at least listen listen closely therefore since the children share in flesh and blood he talking about Christ he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. You get that? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then verse 18 as we finish, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now the focal point here, of course, is on what he went through at the cross. The Bible tells us that he was tempted before that as well. And he came through it, as we would say, with flying colors. He demonstrated beyond any shadow of doubt who he is, who's really in charge. And he wants us to trust him today with every difficulty that comes in our life.